Welcome to episode 14 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. Think you know somebody who might be interested in getting involved, share this episode with them. Tag them on social media, send them an email, or just tell them about it. You can see all of the shows by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. I'd like to share our resource for the week, Operation Deep Dive. Operation Deep Dive is a community-based military veteran suicide prevention study taking place in 14 communities around the country. This four-year study is a partnership between America's Warrior Partnership and researchers from the University of Alabama that's funded by a grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb Foundation. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. We'd also like you to join our Facebook group moderated by fellow combat veteran D. James. You can find the group by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. We've talked before about the public health approach to suicide prevention, and the public health model of intervention has some specific steps that needs to be followed. The first step is to define the problem. We know the national numbers, but do we know the numbers of deaths by suicide in our individual communities? What are the reasons for a veteran's death by suicide, and do they differ from community to community? Our guest today represents a program that's trying to understand exactly that. Shauna? Cherie is Vice President of Programs and Initiatives with America's Warrior Partnership. She's the Principal Investigator for Operation Deep Dive and is responsible for planning, oversight, management, supervision of all programs and initiatives of military-affiliated constituencies. Community-level work is where Cherie's passion lies. Her focus is to go find groups of people who are struggling and identify problems before they build to a crisis. Cherie hopes to empower communities with knowledge of local-level patterns that can lead to positive action. Today on Seeking the Military Suicide Solution, we'll be hearing more about these efforts. Yes, I really appreciate America's Warrior Partnership and their efforts to be able to develop this program to be able to understand what suicide is in the military population in our communities. So let's get into the show, and we'll come back afterwards to pull out some key points. So one of the parts of the public health approach is defining uh, the problem. And, and that's one of the things that America's Warrior Partnership is doing is defining the problem around service member veteran military family suicide with Operation Deep Dive. Sure, yeah. Operation Deep Dive is, is a community-based study, which is where we're looking at the public health model. The public health is looking around a holistic lens around the community. With Operation Deep Dive, we are looking at veterans who have died by suicide, um, accidental gunshot, single high-speed car accident, asphyxiation, drowning, and overdose. And what does that look like in each of those communities? The study is being facilitated by America's Warrior Partnership. It is partnered with the University of Alabama for the analytics behind the study, and it is funded by the Bristol Myers Squibb Foundation. So a lot of coroners are doing suicide autopsies or, or, or investigations. This is more in-depth than that. 
It is. So coroners and medical examiners conduct what's called a psychological autopsy when they're looking at a suicide. What we've done is we have adapted the psychological autopsy to what is called a sociocultural death investigation. What that is looking at is more of the community factors, the community elements, where was this person um, engaged, where were they not, what was their military identity when they were in the service, when they were out of the service, and it's adding to the psychological autopsy additional components that are community-related, which goes into your original statement about the public health model. So it lends itself more into establishing through the public health model what is actually going on in our communities and and being able to get that unique look that's taking into the culture of the community, the, the population in the community, the cause of death that's occurring in the community, and how that may differ from Syracuse, New York, Orange County, California, to the panhandle of Florida. What are the commonalities that we see? But then what are the unique community factors that the community can then know about and they can be flexible to support? And this is really much more of a postvention support, right? You know, we talk about trying to get left of the boom and trying to get upstream. But in my experience, a lot of times people will jump directly to let's do an intervention without knowing what the problem is in their community, right? So we know the national numbers. We don't know what service member veteran military family suicides look like in our communities. Right, exactly. And that's the uniqueness that's occurring in the communities and to know what to target. So for an example, if we take the aggregate and we apply it into our community, we're not identifying directly the, the vulnerable population that is in our community. We're, we're targeting the entire veteran population for, for, this, for this particular conversation, which what if you know that this age range, this gender, this service background that lived here, what if you knew that they were dying at a higher rate for asphyxiation and then this group is dying at a higher rate or a lower rate on suicide? then your partners can come together and you can target that specific population. And you're not having to target the, the entirety, although that, that organically happens, but you're targeting the ones that you now see this is the highest rate for this person. Right. So in El Paso County, Colorado, a large veteran population it's the male Caucasian veterans above 55 have the most deaths by suicide since 2004. Well, that would help us identify that that's the American Legion and the VFW. That's not Team Rubicon. Exactly. And so knowing this in your community informs what your community can action together to target. And, and something else you mentioned, though, is, is this is one thing. When we talk about deaths by suicide and suicide statistics, we'll say, well, it's just the tip of the iceberg because it's only identifiable suicides. You're looking at a range of deaths, not one that's just been targeted as suicide. Correct. From the preliminary information that we've been getting through Operation Deep Dive, a lot of the death records will, if it's not a definite suicide, and the, the coroner medical examiner epidemiologist can err on the side of one of those other five that I listed, they tend to do that. 
And so in doing that, those five other categories, the research and the literature says those are probable suicides. So if we're just getting to the ones that are identified through death records as suicide, we are missing a larger population that, that the research supports is, is probable. So, and I think we were talking before, single vehicle accidents, uh, drownings, and asphyxiations, and drug overdoses, which, um, you know, again, some people may just assume it's a drug overdose, but those who are closest to the veteran know where that veteran was at in their mind or, or in their life, and, and it's a probable or likely suicide. And that's where the sociocultural death investigation can be so powerful. So to the example that you just used, if, you, if we were to interview you about a person that died because it says overdose, then you're telling us what was going on with that person over the last year, and that is the information that's valuable to, to contribute to, to knowing the population and what's going on with them. And, and so the ultimate goal, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, is really, you know, to identify a wide range of what these particular risk factors are, like how many of them are actually there. Because we hear these, what are the warning signs, giving away your, your uh, stuff, but it's a lot more complicated than just one or two things. Absolutely. I mean, suicide and premature death that we're talking about here is extremely complex we can't just target those who just recently lost their job. Although we know that that may be one of the factors to a person taking their life or engaging in harmful behavior or the ones that just recently got separated um, from a spouse or, you know, we've got all of these different factors that contribute to those that have died by suicide. But what makes the difference between someone who has just lost their job, just came out of a marriage, just has the same things as the person sitting next to them, but one engaged in harmful behavior and one did not. You know, you mentioned University of South Alabama, and and I talked to Dr. Philip Smith. He's one of the primary researchers for the project, but he was talking about uh, suicide is complicated because, you know, if somebody has the risk factors, it doesn't always lead to suicide. So not everybody with major depressive disorder goes on, like you said, to engage in self-harm. And that makes things more complicated is trying to parse that out. And this is something, and again, as we said, this is a postvention, right? So this is after someone has died by suicide and you're engaging in families who have experienced a traumatic loss. But we in the community know that postvention then becomes intervention, right? It's a cycle. Those who experience death by suicide automatically are at higher risk the closer they are to the individual. So as you said, this can become something then um, that can be applied prevention rather than just focused on postvention. Exactly. And the big part of that is the education behind it. So typically, most prevention rest on the shoulders of mental health providers in communities. What Operation Deep Dive has done is, it's a study, but it's really a program. It's a program that's being built, you know, to, to be able to leverage the methodology and be able to use in every community across the United States. And what it's done is it's taken federal government, state government from the top, push it down, and then the community and push it up. And with both of them working in tandem together, that's where the support happens in the middle. And 
And when I say community, a lot of times we think of our direct service providers, but it's the boss who starts to notice something's going on with their employer. It's the child's teacher who's late coming in or the child saying mommy or daddy is experiencing this, that, or the other and making it comfortable because they're educated to maybe just reach out and, and say, Hey, how are you doing? Or, Hey, I just wanted to check on you. But, but arming those that come in everyday contact with these individuals so they can be comfortable and they can have a conversation. This is the idea of suicide prevention is everyone's job, right? I am blank and I prevent suicide, right? So I'm a barista, I'm a bartender, I'm a mechanic, I'm a realtor, and I prevent suicide. And I can see how this can help maybe uh, produce some different ideas around, you know, maybe a, a higher number of foreclosures. Well, we need to engage with the banks and provide them some gatekeeper training to be able to identify that because they're just doing their jobs or rural mail carriers who know everybody on their route and they can tell if the mail's starting to pile up when it usually doesn't, but this can kind of help people understand who to engage in their community, not the VSOs, but the individuals. Right, exactly. The individuals that live in their community, they're their neighbors, they're the person, you know, that they see in the grocery store, so not just the direct care providers. So, and, and maybe that's one of the gaps of, of this is there seems to be a disconnect from what we know works at the national level, right? So there's these national level things and then what's happening at the community. And it's almost, and, and Dr. Matt Miller in his episode talked about the gap between the mental health providers and the community and the two of those need to be joined. But vertically, the, the national and the local don't seem to be joined. And yeah, and I think that's Operation Deep Dive will, will lend itself for that that partnership to work together because what it's doing is it's opening up the silos. A lot of times we'll, we'll look at something just from a mental health perspective or just from a community perspective or just from a state or just from a federal perspective. This is taking everybody's perspective and everybody's expertise in whatever they're given, given vocation or, or just what they do every day. And it's bringing it all together. And we're all saying, hey, we're going to take all of our strengths and we're putting our strengths together, united around this. Now, in, in something that we talked about uh, yesterday was that you're trying to expand Operation Deep Dive, um, starting to engage funeral directors. Yeah. So funeral directors have a huge role in our communities. They, they do quite a bit of community outreach. They build relationships with family members. They know the family members. And so what we started to do is put on a lunch and learn in the 14 different communities. And we're inviting the funeral home directors to come to hear about Operation Deep Dive and how to talk to family members who may want to participate in providing interviews. Like when's the right time to have that conversation? What does that conversation look like? that's already within what funeral homes conduct with their own follow-up. And it's additional resource that they can provide to their customers. And, and that's something that, again, that's something where you normally wouldn't think of. I mean, because we don't necessarily engage with funeral directors on a daily basis because they have a, a different job, but they're there at the point of traumatic loss, right? And, and regardless of whether it's described as an overdose or an accidental death or a, or a death by suicide. And so 
if they're able to engage with someone that, that they've made a connection with in a um, very natural way, that will help people engage in, in having these conversations. Mm-hmm. And so, it, and again, it's really encouraging to hear that this is, you know, how do we engage in community partners that we may not think that are part of this? The funeral homes that I've, I've conducted in two locations so far, in Mobile and in the Panhandle of Florida, and the receptiveness of and the energy that, that these funeral home directors, we want to get behind, we want to support this, and this is a part of our community, and, and they want to be a part of the collaboratives, they want to be a resource, and they want to know the resources. And so in in Operation Deep Dive, again, is trying to define the problem, and that falls under awareness, but moving beyond the awareness of just suicide is happening into a deeper awareness. But uh, part of the goal of this show is to take people beyond awareness and into action. And so so what action steps would you recommend that listeners take uh, when it comes to trying to define the problem around suicide in their community? The first step that that you you need to know is, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So what does it look like in your community? Who are the high-risk individuals? And who are the partners that you already have sitting around the table and who's missing? So a lot of times, one, you know the information and you find the information and then you're sitting with your partners and you may notice, oh, I don't have someone here from local law enforcement. I don't have someone here from the community college. I don't have someone here from religious entities. Diversify the collaboratives or or the the partner agencies that are completely holistic of the community. Think of libraries. Think of whatever you think of as your community. When you're looking at the people sitting around, do they make up your community or do they make up one small part of your community? And then you have the knowledge and you have a diverse and holistic group that can all work together to target. You know, I think, and that's a, a frustrating thing in El Paso County and Colorado Springs. I can have four meetings a week, which can be consolidated into one meeting because we're all the same people attending those four meetings, yes, right? And, it, yes. and, it's, and we call it the usual suspect list. And it takes a very deliberate focus to get out of that usual suspect list to bring in the people that are doing, I mean, especially if we're looking at, you know, veteran suicide specifically, but the housing folks and the legal folks uh, and the employment folks. I think with this day and age, we don't always have to come into a room together. I think if we can set up a mechanism that I can be a part of this collaborative and I can sit at my desk and it happens at lunchtime and I can call in and I can video conference in making, making, that time together as accessible as as possible. And it might be that you do do a lunch, right? And you have a lunch and, and everybody knows the first Wednesday of every month is lunch, like Kiwanis, right? Like Kiwanis clubs, they're diverse, they're business, but they're all different kinds of businesses and they're all different kinds of people in their community. I think we need to get with that with our collaborations around suicide. We need to diversify. And to be able to make it standard, right? And again, you know, in the Lions Clubs, right? And they've been around for years in the Elks Clubs and stuff like that. And, you know, members come and go, but 
we don't do that around these these public health problems, suicide specifically. It was great to be able to talk to you, and I appreciate you coming on the show today. Great. Thank you so much. You know, we didn't plan it this way, but this show coming right after the show with Kim and talking about TAPS and postvention really kind of fits in pretty well. I was really glad to have been able to connect with Cherie. She and I were together in person in D.C. about a month and a half ago. And I think she had some really great things to say about what Operation Deep Dive is doing. Definitely. You know, one of the points that she made was about funeral directors and how they've been great partners in the Operation Deep Dive efforts. And this felt worth emphasizing. You know, there are people in our society that we sometimes forget have a bird's eye view on the very things that we're spending a lot of money getting a hold of with our research projects. And funeral directors have long had the ability to identify patterns in the types of deaths they're seeing in their communities. So mapping out the types of people that have a bird's eye view of a pattern feels like a smart approach to take. And surveying these people whose knowledge may otherwise be overlooked seems like a very smart way to get the answers we urgently need in an efficient way. What did you think, Dwayne? You know, I agree. And I think we've talked about this on the show before, the idea of hotel workers or bartenders, or I think Matt was telling us in Oregon about the Humane Society workers, right? And so when, when I had this conversation with Sheree, I thought the same thing as I hadn't even considered because the the director of the largest funeral home here in Colorado Springs sits on the board of directors for our local suicide prevention partnership. But I hadn't even connected with the director or the staff there, even though, you know, they're in the community. And so it was interesting to me, and this is very much an out-of-the-box consideration. Yeah, I agree. It was exactly where my mind went. I thought about Dr. Matt Miller's episode and about some of those linchpin people that have that bird's eye view. And I thought, We should map out everybody that has all kinds of contacts like that. And another one is is therapists, frankly, that see a lot of people often have a landscape view of what's going on as well. The other thought that I had is this. How much will the data and patterns shift given the shift in our society with the pandemic threat we're facing? Social distancing is important, but for some it's going to mean increased isolation. And to return to this point I'm making about people who have a bird's eye view, There are these clinicians who see huge caseloads of people who are struggling, people who are facing particular challenges. A couple days ago, I spoke to Virginia Cruz, who is an Iraq war veteran and currently a uh, licensed professional counselor in a VA hospital, as well as an Army Reserve officer. And she reports that this has been her busiest quarter on record at both the VA and in her private practice. She said this, my patients tell me that their dreams and nightmares are coming back. They are worried about relapsing, going back to their worst trauma symptoms. Many of them are falling back into patterns of avoidance, isolation, and some are staying at home and doing perimeter checks after dark. Adding more guns and ammo makes this a perfect storm. In the context of addressing suicide risk in the military and veteran community, Virginia and I agree that it's critical for clinicians to make this link. For some veterans, the nature of this pandemic threat repeats the themes in their past trauma. The chronic feeling of threat without a clear enemy, the expectation that everyone must be hypervigilant all the time, the sudden loss of purpose and identity surrounding the loss of one's job or role 
repeats military transition stress. Being suddenly cut off from others as a result of social distancing repeats transition stress for many. And finally, being deprived of basic necessities and having to make do without them is a trauma trigger for some people. It's important for us to help those who are suffering gain the insight that their suffering makes sense. It's coming from connecting what is happening now with their past trauma. Once they have this insight, they can begin to see how the current situation is actually different in some critical ways. As long as we maintain appropriate safety precautions, including staying home, disinfecting what we bring into our home, and maintaining appropriate social distance, we're likely to be protected from risk. What did you think, Dwayne? Yeah, I agree. It's interesting that we're talking about this long-term project that we've been planning about addressing suicide and suicide risk in the military-affiliated population. And we're happening to do this in the middle of a global pandemic, which we have discussed both here in the Facebook group, is a historic event that will change many things. As you're talking about, I'm not sure if you had seen the recent report from the Bob Woodruff Foundation. No, I haven't seen it yet. So our colleague and and a former guest, Rajiv Ramshand, and a couple of his colleagues had done a report on the impact of COVID-19 on the veteran community. And really, they're saying the same things that you're saying is some of the impacts that are happening. One of the big ones is that the COVID-19 pandemic creates at least three conditions, emergent trauma, loneliness due to social isolation, and unplanned job or wage loss that could culminate in a perfect storm threatening the mental health of many veterans. I mean, we're talking about the the current Mm -hmm. impact of losing our jobs and things like that. But as this continues, we are going to have those impacts and those points that you made about re-traumatization and even concurrent traumatization with what's going on right now is really important. And that's so interesting because when, you know, when you and I have a thought that's really like tracking, even though we haven't talked to each other, like how did people handle the London bombings? You know, in a recent recording, we talked about that. I haven't reviewed the Bob Woodruff report. Of course, I think highly of Rajiv and his work. And it's interesting that, you know, they used almost the same exact wording. So, yeah, absolutely. But I don't think that veterans are the only ones at risk. Well, this is definitely something, and, and I assume, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that Cherie and the folks at Operation Deep Dive are taking into account what's currently happening as a current stressor yeah. um, for anything that's happening. But this goes into the fact of PTSD is not just combat-related PTSD. I have had a number of veterans, and as you were talking, I was thinking of a particular veteran who his PTSD isn't related to his military service. He was in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, and he was doing exactly that. He was guarding his house with his weapons. He was doing perimeter checks. He was without power. He was within deprivation and showing signs of PTSD, but it wasn't PTSD related to the military, although he assumed that's what it was, that you know, environmental disasters and even less known, but now even more prevalent to serious health risk can bring about symptoms and even develop into PTSD. Yeah, it's interesting how you know, similar feelings in our trauma can create a resurgence of old trauma. For me, this feels a little bit like when I was in LA growing up and we had the riots and we had to have a curfew, we had to be on lockdown and there was like this threat of people breaking in and violence potentially and didn't really materialize, but that feeling was similar. And then once we have that insight of, oh, this is where it's coming from, it makes perfect sense. We can then start to analyze how it's actually different. 
And I think indefinitely the conversation about Operation Deep Dive and the study about military and veteran suicide specifically is going to take in a lot of those factors is how do we impact others, um, even if we're not directly impacted by a death by suicide immediately in in our family or our friends or our former service members. So yeah, I think that, again, this idea of exploring this topic in the midst of a significant historical global health scare is really important. And I think it's really going to impact how Operation Deep Dive and how many people doing the research is doing things a number of years from now and, and from here on out. I'm sure they will shift and I'm glad that they have the infrastructure set up and they're actually asking the questions as this is unfolding. Absolutely. So we thank you everybody for joining us to check out the show. Make sure to look at the show notes where we're going to have links to everything we talked about in the episode and Sean and I's conversation. You can find the show notes at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS14, where you can find everything we're talking about as well as on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions or let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding DJs. Find that by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. While you're at it, check out the resource for the week, Operation Deep Dive, which can be found at americaswarriorpartnership.org. Operation Deep Dive is a community-based military veteran suicide prevention study taking place in 14 communities across the country. This four-year study is a partnership between America's Warrior Partnership and researchers from the University of Alabama that's funded by a grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb Foundation. The goal of Operation Deep Dive is to identify community factors that can develop an upstream approach to enhancing programs that improve the quality of life and reduce risk factors associated with veteran suicide and non-natural deaths. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838-255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution. And make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.